Hey, Jared Dubin here. This is the audio from Thursday's chat on the Halftime app with Brad Roland from the Locked on Hawks podcast. Uh, obviously, by that intro, you can say we talked a lot about the Atlanta Hawks and their slow start to the season. What's going on with Trey Young, development of DeAndre Hunter and Cam Reddish, Clint Capella's sort of slow start. Nate McMillan, basically everything having to do with the Hawks, we talked about it. And uh, we'll be back next week once again, 5 to 6 p.m. on Tuesday and Thursday. Guests to be determined, but uh, enjoy the podcast with Brad. Thank you for doing this, man. Appreciate you coming on. It's my pleasure. Uh, always happy to talk to you in any form, and uh, it's basketball season. I was just thinking about it the other day. We've obviously talked about our blackjack experience in Vegas many <laughs> times. Was that actually the first time that we met that night? I think it was. If it wasn't the first night, it was definitely the first time in terms of like that week. But yeah, we yeah, spent a lot that of time week. Together. Of, oh God, <laughs> it's. At this point, it's like verging on a, a legendary blackjack story that night. Um, if anyone ever sees me or Brad in person, ask us to tell you the story about this night of blackjack. We, we, we will share it with you, unquestionably. Yeah, 100%. Like, it's one of my favorite stories to tell. But we're going to talk uh, all things Atlanta Hawks right now. And just to start, uh, uh, so Brad, by the way, hosts the, uh, the Locked On Hawks podcast for the Locked On Podcast Network. And if anybody's got questions, Hawks-wise, for either of us, send them in the chat. And uh, we'll try to get through them as we move along, as we talk about some things as well. Um, right now, Atlanta is 4-8, minus 4-point differential on a per-game basis. Obviously not playing particularly well in really any area. Like, I saw a tweet the other day about all of their rankings in various categories, it was like 27th in defense, 23rd in shots at the rim, 25th in conversion rate at the rim, 3rd in the frequency of mid-range shots. They're not shooting threes. They're not shooting well from three. They're not doing well in transition. What are the things that you're most worried about that you're seeing from them right now? And what are the things where you think this is something that I'm not too worried, this will stabilize? What, where, where do you fall on that front? Yeah, so... To your point, there's there's a lot of things. It's, it's one of those weird things where a team is supposed to be as good as they were supposed to be. And normally, if a team struggles out of the gate, it's fairly obvious what's wrong. It's mm -hmm. one or two things. Uh, maybe it's an injury or somebody's, somebody's struggling. And uh, like you said there, it's kind of a lot of things, which is perhaps the most concerning part is that you just have so many areas which they're not playing well. Um, but if you try to isolate it, um, I've talked a lot about this, and um, I, I think it's probably the single biggest difference in my mind between this team right now and the team, and especially in the second half of last season, is the way that Clint Capella is playing. Mm -hmm. um, he was tremendous last year, particularly defensively. Uh, I thought he had a pretty decent, you know, all defense case, like one of the top five to seven defensive impact guys in the entire league last year. Uh, and he kind of carried them defensively to the point where they were legitimately good with him on the court. And given the rest of their personnel with Trey Young, especially, 
to be pretty good with him on the court was uh, it's fairly impressive. And this year, he's just not been the same guy. Um, you know, I've, I've pointed this out too a lot, but he struggled out, out of the gate last year, but not for this long. And mm-hmm. he had this Achilles soreness and he had a procedure of some kind in the offseason. The Hawks are kind of famously coy about how they talk about injuries, but they had three or four guys that had these offseason, you know, PRP things or non-surgical procedures. And Capella was one of them and was limited in training camp play one preseason game and basically has not been the same guy. And it, it manifests both when you watch, um, really on both ends of the floor, but they just rely on him so much on defense to the point where this is the one that, that gets me. Uh, opponents are attempting um, just, just a lot more shots at the rim, and they're also shooting, uh, at least according to Queen in the Glass, about 70% at the rim. The Hawks are dead last in the league in rim defense right now and i think that is uh not only capella by any means but uh, they basically need him to be awesome and he's not been awesome so far that's the simple way to put it is that the the personnel's better than you might think everywhere else and he isn't the only problem but right now they're 27 28th in defense and they won't ever be great on that end of the floor but they can't be 27th yeah i mean so i mean they're basically just outside the top 10 in offensive rating um i think they're yeah, they're 12th, and they're 0.4 points per 100 possessions outside the top 10. I think we've seen enough, especially from Trey at this point, that we should think they're going to be a top 10, top 5 to top 10 offense throughout most of the season. Like, that's a guy who, one of the reasons I was so frustrated with him early in his career was because we know he can basically create a really good shot pretty much every trip down the court with his combination of skills. And the times when he would short-circuit the offense were what always made me so angry with him. And to, to his credit and to Nate McMillan's credit, I think he's done a lot less of that since Nate took over. The The defense is more worrisome to me specifically because Capella had so much responsibility for them on that side of the court last year with basically taking away every single inch of the paint and counting on everybody else to do everything else. And he's just he doesn't look quite as mobile this year. He's not rebounding as well this year. I think his minutes are down, which I would imagine has something to do with the fact that he's not 100% healthy. Like, for them to be 27th, 28th in rim defense in both frequency and the the rate at which opponents are making those shots, that's like a blinking neon sign that he's not, at least right now, the guy that he was last year. And that leads me to be much more worried about their defense than I am about their offense, even though obviously Clint plays a big role for them offensively too, because he's the primary screener. And, you know, and that obviously, if he's not able to roll as hard to the rim as he usually is, or if he's not quite the same lob threat as he usually is, that affects things too. But they have so many more ways to make up for what he does on offense than they do to make up for what he does on defense, if that makes sense. Definitely. And, I think I alluded to it, but you know his offense has not been where it's norm- where it normally is either. And mm-hmm. the thing about that is, like, it's it's so early that you don't want to worry about a guy you know falling off. He's 27 years old. That's not he's he's played a lot of minutes, so there is maybe a concern that maybe he's just not going to be this guy anymore. But more moreover, <clears throat> I'm worried a little bit more about the injury and not being 100% because like you know he played a little bit last year when he wasn't 100% and it wasn't so great, but. Uh, the responsibility, I mean, people were getting weird with me locally in Atlanta last year for how often I said this, but he was their second best player last season. And that wasn't because John Collins was bad. John Collins is awesome. I love John Collins. But 
with the way that they were playing defensively, particularly scheme-wise, and you mentioned it, they, they filter everything to Capella. They relied on him so heavily, and the, and the gap between when he was on and when he was off defensively is so enormous. And they drafted a, you know, a, a big man in the 2020 lottery in, on, in a, on a Kongwu who is currently hurt. So, you know, Gorgie Jang is fine as a backup center. Uh, John Collins could play some center, but their defense is constructed quite literally around Clint Capella. And if he's not going to be that guy, they're going to have trouble because, you know, offensively, they've been fine so far. You got into it. Like, but the, the theory of this team, if you want to just simplify it, is, you know, very good to a lead offense and capable defense. And that's mm-hmm. the way that they have to do this with their personnel, especially with Trey as their best player. And the offense hasn't been as good as they want it to be either. But the defense is uh, I'm more worried about that under the floor just because of the personnel. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the interesting thing for them with the offense is they've been pretty good despite not shooting very well, you know, they're, and not getting really to the free throw line that much, but, you know, limiting turnovers for the most part. I think I saw yesterday they had like the second or third lowest turnover rate in the league, and they've done a pretty good job on the offensive glass. And that has sort of buoyed them a little bit where, you know, they do have all this shooting talent. You would think that they wouldn't be a team that I'm looking at it now, like they're 21st an effective field goal percentage, like right behind the Rockets. You would think that this team with this kind of talent that they have on offense, not just Trey and not just Capello, who obviously is a guy who takes pretty much all of his shots right around the rim, but, you know, John Collins and Bogdanovich and Gallinari and Herter and Hunter and Reddish, like they should be a team that shoots much better than they have so far. So I want to know basically – how are you going to thank me for reverse jinxing <laughs> Kevin Herter into making shots for the first time all season a couple nights ago? Uh, with my eternal gratitude, I suppose. Yeah. No, uh, no, Herter was so due. Like, you know, there was you, there's so many conversations to be had about Herter and like whether the playoff stuff was real. Like, he had that game seven in Philly and got mm-hmm. a lot of attention for it. And, uh, you, I mean, maybe they you know, they timed that well on the extension and he, he timed that well, his performance, but he was just like flat out awful for the first like eight games of the season. And there was like kind of a panic in Atlanta. Like, Oh, he got paid. It's like, nah, he's just missing shots, man. Like he didn't have an off season. This is eight games. And Kevin Herter is not going to suddenly stop making shots. I don't think, but I mean, you said it, they have, they have too much offensive talent to not be really good on offense. Um, I don't know if you, uh, in fact, I know you have not paid quite as close attention as I have to the local stuff, but the number one topic locally is the, uh, aside from maybe Capella, is the shot profile. Like the, uh, and the something I, actually, I, I probably had a part in starting this actually. I was uh, yelling and screaming about their, uh, their shot mix basically and how bad it's been so far. Like yep. the Hawks have shot actually very well from three in terms of their accuracy. They're top five or six in the league and they're still that bad in terms of EFG. And it's because they're taking a bunch of long twos and floaters and they're also not getting to the rim and the getting to the rim part um, is foreseeable. This is a roster that does not have a ton of rim pressure guys outside of Trey um, and Collins, but uh, the McMillanization of the offense has been quite a topic, and it's not only his fault. They're they're just kind of taking a lot less threes and taking a lot more long twos, and uh, generally that's a bad idea. Uh, and I think, I think actually just to simplify it even more, they're taking the seventh most two point attempts in the league, and they're shooting the twenty seventh best percentage on twos. Yeah, that's not great. No. Uh, one thing I'm curious about with Herder is he's been coming off the bench, and I just think throughout his career including most of last season, 
he's just been better as a shooter um, when he starts. And uh, he, I'm pretty sure the big game that he had the other night was like his first or second game starting of the season. And, you know, it's, it's obviously a small sample size to read into this early in the year. But I do think it's interesting to potentially look at that because the same thing happened with Bogdanovich last year. He was coming off the bench a lot to start the season and he just wasn't shooting well. Yep. And then McMillan took over. He came off the bench for a little bit more. And then I think it was Herter got hurt for a little bit. And then Bogey went into the starting lineup and all of a sudden he started, you know, like ripping the nets all over the place. I'm sure some of that is just when you come off the bench, you're not playing with Trey as much. So you're not getting quite as good as shots in all likelihood, but you know, the, the two of the, and, it's tough to start both of them because you got to start Hunter for defense. You got to start Collins because he's just one of your two or three best players. Obviously, Capella is going to start. So really only one of Herter and Bogdanovich can start unless you're going to bring yeah. Hunter off the bench. But that's kind of a waste of him because you want him to guard the other team's best player. So it's like one of those <laughs> guys has to come off the bench. and It doesn't really seem like either one of them is all that comfortable doing that or at least like they need to get a better way to create shots for the bench guys that play as sort of the second side shooter driver types. Like maybe it's the backup point guard play that needs to be improved in order to unlock whichever of those guys isn't starting. Yeah, I think that's a mixture of all of that. And yeah, to your point about the, the the starter versus reserve splits for Herter, there's a little bit of noise to those or his career numbers because, you know, obviously early on in his career as a rookie, he wasn't very good and rookies are bad. But mm. for his career, I think he's like five percentage points better in true shooting when he starts versus when he comes off the bench. It's mm -hmm. not a small it's not a small gap. Um, and yeah, I, I think ideally Herter has been his best and has shown his best. And honestly, I think he almost fits better with the starters than Bogdanovich does. Um and part of that's defense. I think Herter's a better defender than Bogdanovich right now, at least for what they need. Um, and But at the same time, Bogdanovich last year was incredible in the second half of the season, like kind of underratedly so, was bombing and averaging 22 points a game and um, yep. he's a vet and all that stuff. And also, I'm not uh, talking out of school, I don't, I don't think too much. I think he's kind of said this a couple different places, but Bogey does not want to come off the bench. He was uh, pretty pretty not happy about that last year when he came and signed the big contract. Big contract and was coming off the bench. He did not seem to enjoy that very much. He didn't uh, enjoy it in Sacramento. That was no, like a and that's the thing. He wanted like, to leave. Yeah, he, and he, you know, he, he got his money, but he got his money and then immediately was off the bench again in Atlanta. And part of that was injury related, but they left him there. He didn't play that well. And then when he started, like you said, he got better. So there's not a perfect solution because I think, you know, just simply on paper, I think Bogdanovich is a better player than Herter right now, but I think that Herter might be a better fit with the starters. You just can't really make that switch, I don't think, politically. Um, one thing that I would do, though, and you kind of got into it with the, uh, with the backup point guard play, but the Hawks have been, once again, terrible without Trey on the floor offensively, which is now a three-plus-year problem for them. Um, but one of the successes that they had last year under Nate was, particularly in the second half and in the playoffs, they started to pretty much stagger Trey and Bogdanovich to where they were using Bogey as like their primary offensive engine on the second unit, not necessarily yeah. as the point guard, but as a guy who was like the number one option pretty unequivocally. And that worked very well. And I wonder if they might try that again, um, not to not necessarily not start him, but maybe pull him out a little bit earlier, have him kind of anchor that unit because one of the other things other than the shot profile questions has been McMillan just kind of freely and openly and regularly using full bench groups uh, and it's not worked so far. Uh, I don't love that anyway, but it definitely has not worked. And I wonder if a little bit more staggering might uh, alleviate some of that. Yeah, they're basically like the opposite of the Knicks, where the the full bench unit is like 
the Knicks best lineup for going on two years now. Not for um, the Hawks. <laughs> no, not at all. And like I, I think it's it makes a lot of sense to have like basically Bogey and Herder as the co lead ball handlers slash co lead options with bench units like Lou Williams as the backup point guard. I just don't think is going to work for you. Um, and, and we've got a, a comment from baller science here that says Bogdan was a disappointment in the playoffs. Herder was more affected. And I mean, I think that's true. I think we also yeah. have to remember that Bogdan was playing hurt during the playoffs. Yeah. Particularly I mean, late. He was dragging his leg for about the last yeah. half of the playoffs. Yeah. And that was, you know, he missed what, two games, one game, two games, something like that. Um, and it was, you know, it was, it was not pretty. Or yeah, he missed the the last game, the game. Uh, or wait, no, that's this season's game. I think I'm he had to have. A, I mean, I know he had to have a procedure after the season. Like they were pretty open about how that he was not healthy. He was on the injury report pretty much every game in the playoffs. And yeah, if you just watched him, he had nothing. He had nothing physically. Yeah, after game two against Milwaukee, which was when he first got hurt and he only played eighteen minutes. After that, he went. 39% from the field for the rest of the playoffs for the, the final four games of the series. Like that's, you know, not what we expected from him. As you mentioned, he was like incredible um, down the stretch of the season. And that was something that I wrote about, I think after game one of the Knicks series, where I basically said like, once he got inserted into the starting lineup, he was 50% from the field, 49% from three on nine attempts a game. And he was like one of the best players in the league in the second half after the all-star break. I don't think that what he was doing in the playoffs was like representative of what we expected from him last year or what we should expect from him this year and in the future. Like that's just, it's not really representative of what he was. I don't think. No. And, and I saw, I saw the question too. And I think there was a follow-up in there too. And about, you know, needing somebody that can take pressure off of Trey uh, in terms of getting to the rim and creating offense. And that's, that's true. I think, um, one of the things about this team's roster construction, and they are deep and they are talented, is that they don't have all the guys that they have that can handle the ball and create a little bit. Your Herder type, Bogdanovich, Hunter, even Reddish, none of those guys are get all the way to the rim creators, mm-hmm. or they're not, and or they're not great passers. They're all kind of like they can get their own shot a little bit off the dribble, and but it's more it's more like pull ups, and it's more there's not a great passing. And this is not a good passing team outside of Trey quite frankly. Uh, Collins has made strides there, but they have some you know, unevenness on their offense. They have a bunch of shooting, and that's what you need around Trey, and it works when Trey's out there, but when Trey's not out there, they get they really bogged down. That's not anything you know, breaking news. Everybody kind of knows that, but um, part of that is they don't really have anybody to take the load off of Trey. I mean, there's also that thought about that forever now, for two years probably, about getting Trey off the ball a little bit and having him use his shooting all that stuff, but A, he doesn't really want to, and B, they don't have anybody else to run the show when he's not there, so... Uh, it's not like it's a broken roster, but they don't really have that guy that can really just like go to the rim at will when he's not out there. It's also like the issue of them not playing particularly well offensively when he's off the court. That's not exclusive to the Hawks. That's like basically every heliocentric offense, as our friend Seth Bart now would say, like LeBron's teams have consistently been terrible on offense when he's on the bench. Luca's team has been really bad offensively when he's on the bench. Um, Kawhi's teams, for the most part, haven't been very good offensively when he's on the bench. This is just like when you build your entire system around, like, this guy is going to get us whatever shot. When that guy goes to the bench, you don't really have an offense, so your offense tends to struggle. And I don't, I don't know how you mitigate that 
if like what you're doing offensively for the most part when that guy is in the game is working so you don't really want to change things up to the point where you ruin what works for you so you can try to fix what isn't working because what's working happens more often than what isn't like you know what i'm talking about like with that balance yeah definitely i mean if anything that i'm not saying i'm worried about that but they've kind of tinkered towards that this year a little bit um and mcmillan is not the kind of guy who is going to just let trey run a pick and roll every time like they mm-hmm. run a lot of pick and roll still and they should that's you know the collins collins young pick and roll uh, you know, young Capella pick and rolls. Those it, the, the numbers on those are great for multi-year samples. They need to run more pick and roll if anything else. But they've gotten they've called more plays, and they seem to like that last year when Nate took over. But Nate has this more of a finger on the pulse, like in game, and he likes to kind of run stuff in a way that they weren't necessarily doing, and that was probably good for guys like Bogdanovich last year, where they oh, sure. were drawing up stuff for him. But at the same time, um, they can at least they have a tendency to kind of get away from what they're good at on offense. Um, you know, Trey has been really kind of, I think he's been just fine this year for him. Um, but fine for him is not, you know, he, 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 he could be better than this. And, uh, they like get away from Collins, for instance, like Collins is their second best player on offense. And he has like a 17% usage, 17% usage rate right now. Like they're kind of just, um, figuring out what their offense is going to look like. And the broad strokes are there. Clearly the best thing they can do is put the ball in Trey's hands. But, uh, to your point about, you know, the systematic stuff that just kind of comes with the, comes with it when you have a guy that you run your offense through is, you know, it's going to be a perpetual question. It has been what you do when he's not out there. And they thought they had it fixed a little bit better last year with Lou. Um, they brought Lou back. Lou looks like he might be cooked. Um, it might, it's, it's obviously early, but, and I love Lou. I, I played against Lou in high school. I've known Lou for a long time, but he might just be, it might just be the end. He's 35 years old and you have Delon Wright, who I like a lot, but he's not going to, he's not going to run your offense. He's more of that hybrid, you know, kind of do everything, play defense. He's got more size and you got to play him with somebody else that can run your offense. So, uh, the jury's out. I mean, they've kind of gone back and forth now. Nate has been, uh, kind of indiscriminately going back and forth between Lou and, and Delon night by night. And I don't, I haven't really <laughs> got a feel for why that is, but, uh, eventually they're going to have to pick one of those guys probably, and then just kind of figure it out from there. Yeah, I mean, I think he's going back and forth because neither one of them is playing particularly well. That's a, at least kind of yeah. I mean, right, right's been searching. better than Lou, uh, but that's a low bar. You know, Lou, that, as you well know, the thing with Lou is that if he's not cooking on offense, there's nothing else there. Like if he's if he doesn't have it as a scorer, like there's not a lot else that he can do for you. At least with right, he can do other things, and that's kind of why where I default. Mm-hmm. But it is definitely true that you don't want to have Delon Wright be the operator of your offense if you're a good team. It's not, it's not his strength. Yeah, I mean, we've seen, I think, throughout his career that he's been better playing with another lead ball handler in the backcourt where he can sort of like share responsibility and be either the guy on the second side or the guy at the top of the court depending on the possession and doesn't have to handle like everything from a creation standpoint. You know, we saw that when he was coming off the bench with Van Vliet in Toronto and when he was in Memphis and went like basically every stop that he's been, he's been better that way. Like even when he was in, uh, where was he? Sacramento last year. Like he was better when he was, you know, coming off the bench as sort of a co lead ball handler um, with like, like with Halliburton coming off the bench there. Yep. Um, one thing I, I think um, when it comes to John Collins, I think the fact that his usage rate is down where it is and he's still at like, 16 and nine a night just speaks to how good of a player he's become. Yep. And like (laughs) how much of like a fill in the blanks type he is now where he's not necessarily the number one option 
on any trip down the court, but he knows where to be. He knows what to do. He'll knock down catch and shoots. Like he spends so much more time away from the basket than he ever used to. I think he's working on like a career low offensive rebound rate again this year. So he's not getting like, he's not the primary screener. He's not getting the offensive rebounds. He's not really getting to the line a ton because he doesn't spend as much time near the basket. And he's still doing like the same kind of scoring that they're used to from him. It's just, it's really impressive from him. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, before last season, because they had traded for Clint Capella um, during the previous year, but he had, he was hurt and they never saw that group play together. There was all this talk about, you know, how is it going to work with John Collins playing next to a guy, Capella, who doesn't space the floor, who has to run pick and roll to be effective on offense. And, you know, they didn't really ask Capella to change anything. They asked Collins to change things and they asked mm-hmm. Collins to fit around him. And he's developed so much. I mean, if you told me this is going to be the player that John Collins is, um, when I was covering him before the draft and when he first got drafted, I would have told you you were crazy. Like he's a guy who is a, you know, very, very, very competent or better three-point shooter. He's comfortable in the mid-range. Uh, he's been much better this year, probably a career best. In fact, I know it's a career best in terms of his assist rate and the way that he can operate as a short roll guy. That's gotten a lot better. Um, defensively, he's come such a long way. Like he was a really, really pretty bad as a prospect defensively. And within the last you know year and a half, has made a ton of strides to where if anything, he's probably even a slight positive now in his role. And I think even in the playoffs is pretty is fascinating because locally, you know, he was going for this contract and he got paid. Um, and there was this split where he didn't average, you know, off the charts counting stats in the playoffs. Uh, and there was like, you know, is, is, is a guy averaging 15 points a game uh, give you enough to make $100 million? And if you watched it, people like, people like us that watched it were like, really impressed with John Collins in the playoffs because he played such good defense and he fit in and did all the little things. And I thought it was really, this is just kind of a small thing, but I thought it was really admirable that he was willing in the middle of a contract push to play the way he was playing last year, to do the little things and kind of openly play in a way that was going to sacrifice some of his numbers. And he still got good good numbers because he's so good and he's so efficient. But, you know, he averaged 21 and 10 two years ago. Like this is a guy who literally averaged that for a full season on great efficiency and the last year and a half has openly and willingly sacrificed that to make the team better with Capella. And I mean, honestly, this year so far, he's been their best player. Like Trey's their best player, don't get me wrong. But through 12 games, he's been their best player in terms of what he's actually playing at right now. Even with the usage down, I think he's been you know, probably their brightest spot so far. Yeah, I mean, I think I would agree with you. And I think I would also agree where the, the playoff run that he had was like the most impressed with him that I've been. I think it was like the first two games or so against the Knicks, it was like, is John Collins going to like show up for the playoffs? <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then after that, it was like, Oh man, like the light went on. And like, I, I think he, whatever it was, he took like two shots in that game where they lost to the Knicks and he was on the court for like 12 minutes or whatever it was, just kind of like did nothing. And then after that, he was just really good the rest of the way through almost uniformly. Like he had some bad shooting games, here and there, some games where he wasn't as involved offensively as you'd like him to be. But basically, since early in the Knicks series, he's been the kind of guy that he's been this year. And that's just like, it sort of reminds me of, of like what Aaron Gordon did when he got to the Nuggets, where he just took on like a little bit less responsibility offensively and just decided to do everything else more is kind of like a version of what Collins has been doing. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> He has a career 64% true shooting in four and a half seasons. And the last three seasons, it's been 65 plus. Like, 
I know that you know he's a he's a big he's a combo big and it may not be it may not be quite as impressive but his finishing is uh pretty much ridiculous if you ask me like if you could buy um, that was that was always the thing that was carrying him as a prospect too was that he was this great finisher around the rim and that hasn't changed but he's also now combining that with perimeter shooting free throw shooting passing etc like and like in between stuff too like floaters and do anything it's really i mean i'm not trying to overstate it but he doesn't have i mean his biggest weakness coming into this season was definitely his playmaking as a passer and even that he's not this great playmaker don't get me wrong but he's made real strides there and like he goes into an offseason and does what you want him to do he fixes stuff that he wasn't doing as well previously and you know just you have a hard time finding a better finisher around the league like how many how many guys in the league you cover the whole league how many guys are better finishers than john collins around the rim like it's not it's not a long list. It's like the pure rim roller guys, but those guys just dunk. Yeah, like, he, he and, can do and anything. He does more than that. Yeah, like it's he's just a good player, man. Like there's there's not much else you could say. Yeah, <laughs> I have I've spent all my resources just now describing him. Uh, I'm out of things to say about John Collins, but no, I mean in all honesty, the offense kind of got some respect the entire you know when when he averaged at 21 and 10 a couple years ago, but he's rounded into form and just you know he's uh the fact that there was like this big conversation about whether, whether they should pay him, whether, whether they should trade him. Uh, it's kind of looking sillier by the day just because of the way he's playing. And yeah, I don't think anybody would draw up Clint Capella as the perfect guy in a lab to play with John Collins. I think everyone knows that, including the Hawks, but Collins is the reason it's, that it's worked. Like Capella has been really good too. Don't get me wrong, but Collins is the one that had to adjust and he, and he basically did it. For sure. Like, I mean, I think you could probably not draw a less ideal partner yeah, than, you know, a rim rolling big guy who has to be the primary screener. Like that's basically exactly what you don't want. And he's made it work to his credit. Um, we've got a comment here from Thrilluminati, I guess is how you would pronounce it. Love that. Um, fewer bench minutes and no back to backs. The postseason format solves a lot of the roster's problems. That, uh, is true of most teams. Um, you get to play, you get to play your best players for more minutes a lot of your problems go away. I do think one of this roster's strengths is its depth, but specifically at one spot, they don't have, like, not having the offensive engine when Trey is off the court, like, obviously being in the playoffs when he can play 40-plus minutes a game, it's a lot less of a problem than when he's playing, you know, 34 in the regular season. Yeah, I actually think that on paper, given the team's depth, they profile well as a regular season team. Um, in terms of just like compared to there, you know, there are teams that they're, they're trying to compete with, like, you know, your Brooklyn's and your Milwaukee's and um, they have less depth than the Hawks do. It's just that the depth doesn't really, it hasn't worked very well so far. And I mean, you know, this Jared from watching that Hawks Knicks series, it took David Millen a while to actually kind of shorten up. Like he was kind of treating the playoffs like a regular yep. season series for a while. Like he was not. He's not, he's not the kind of coach that um, is you know changing everything that he does like Ty Lue would in a playoff series. He's going to run his stuff. He's going to do his stuff. And he finally shortened it up later on. But it's interesting to me because, yeah, everybody wants to play their best guys more. And Trey playing 40 minutes versus 34 minutes is very helpful. But, um, you know, provided that Gallinari is not just cooked and or that other stuff does not like that, they're actually probably better suited for the regular season. It's just that it hasn't happened so far. Yeah, I mean, well, I don't think you want to go full Tyloo necessarily. Well, well yeah, he, you know what I mean, though. Like, the, he will even change stuff. stuff in the middle of a series <laughs> that is working to do what doesn't work. Agreed. Like yeah. bench Terrence Mann when he's like your pretty obviously your best bench player. 
Um, yeah, Ty, Ty Lue is very aggressive uh, to his detriment, and also, but when it works, it works great. Like, and he's the guy that popped in my mind as like the example of a guy who just like throws out everything in the middle of a series. McMillan oh, yeah. is the antithesis of that. Like, he's not going to change much. This is just kind of the guy he is, for better or worse. And it obviously works. So last year it worked great for them. Like that steady hand and being the vet that's you know commands that locker room definitely worked for them. But uh, we'll see. Uh, I don't think they're, they're going to just suddenly like play seven guys though. No, I don't think so either. But I, I, look, four and eight, you don't want to be in that situation. Losing these games, you know, they're minus four point differential. That's not good. But like some of this is just if Herter starts making shots again and Gallinari starts making shots again, two guys that are good shooters for the significant majority of their careers. And if Capella gets healthy, like they're going to be a much better team. Like their last five games, they've lost five games in a row. In the midst of what has to be one of the toughest stretches of a seven-game schedule that any team is going to see all season, yep. like at Brooklyn, <laughs> then the next night back at home against Utah, at Phoenix, at Golden State, second half of a back-to-back at Utah, then tomorrow at Denver, and then Sunday home for Milwaukee, you're not going to find very many tougher seven-game stretches all year. Now, obviously, going... 0-5 and, and being able to go at best 2-5 and five, and you know that's if you sweep Denver and Milwaukee that's not ideal but it's also like you know you lose to these teams like if you had spread those games out over the course of the schedule and you're like oh you know we lost once to Brooklyn to, to Utah Phoenix Golden State like that's not a sign of impending doom no. it's just the way like it, it makes me think of there's a, a football writer that I follow where a couple of years ago, the, the Cowboys had like the point differential of like a 12 win team and wound up going eight and eight because basically all of their bad plays were stacked together <laughs> such that it made them lose games that they should have been competitive in. And it feels like that with the Hawks where these losses are just stacked next to each other and it makes it seem worse than it actually is, if that makes sense. It definitely does. And I, I think, you know, coming into the season, I kind of foreshadowed that stretch as, uh, like you said, extremely difficult. Like, you, you would, you, you'd have a hard time finding a worse stretch than that, particularly with the way that, like, Golden State's playing in the middle of it. Um, uh, and, you know, you couldn't drop in a lab a more difficult back-to-back than having to go from San Francisco to, to Salt Lake City on the second night when Utah is when Utah's not in a back-to-back, all that stuff. But... The counterpoint, and I agree with all of what you said there, and I think they are better than this. They're better than four and eight. I think that's not breaking news. Um, the counterpoint would be that you didn't think that you would get run out of the gym by a few of these teams. That's true. Um, the way that it's been that's a little bit concerning, if you want to be a pessimist, is that you know you lost by double digits to Philly. Uh, you were down by double digits to Brooklyn, lost by nine. You got kind of blitzed by Utah without Donovan Mitchell in your home building. That was back-to-back, but still... Um, Golden State ran away from you. Granted, Steph at 50, he was just kind of in peak Steph mode. But then Utah was non-competitive on Tuesday. So, like, they've kind of got away from it a little bit. And they've been, you know, you know, McMillan's been harping on this a lot. Like, I don't know how much what to make of this, but they've been, whenever they have these stretches, when they miss, they miss shots for three minutes, they kind of lose their defense and they lose their composure and the officials start getting in their heads and all this kind of stuff. And it's kind of like the ball running on the hill in a way that you don't see for a team that just made the conference finals. Like they, they're playing in a way that's like been kind of like a young team would. And they're still pretty young, don't get me wrong, but they're kind of uh, letting stuff bother them right now, like kind of letting stuff get in their heads. So maybe it was just the timing of this trip and how difficult it was. But, you know, I think I'm generally not 
a sky is falling guy on this Hawks team because of all the context. The schedule's been brutal, all that stuff. You know, you can find ways to worry. Like you could find ways to worry about Cam Reddish, or you can find ways to worry about Danilo Gallinari, who looks like he might just be old at this point. But like, it's still too early to like really panic. Yeah, I think even when Gallo is playing well, though, he sort of physically looks old. That is true, and that's why I'm not worried yet. But like, if you just watched him this season, you would think Gallo was 40. I mean, uh, but that's the way he looks sometimes. And, yeah, and that's a little know, bit like older than the you know 39 that he looked for most of last year. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, speaking of like letting things spiral, though, we have a, a comment from Hawks, Hawks Locks, I guess. Maybe that's like Hawks Locks. I don't know. Um, complaining about fouls has tanked the offense at times this season. You obviously have watched them more often and more closely than I have because, you know, you cover the one team and I cover the whole league. So I've seen, if I look at my spreadsheet here, I've seen four Haw- four of the 12 Hawks games so far, and they're two and two in the games that I watched, the two games that they lost, they got blown out both times, <laughs> once against Utah and once against, um, what was the other one? Oh, no, sorry, the blowout win in the first game of the season against Dallas. Oh, Dallas, was yeah. The other blowout. Um, but ha- have you seen the same thing that, that Hawks Locks has seen? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, at this point, it might be overstated locally because, like, Nate McMillan has talked about it multiple times, and I think it's gotten, um, and this is partly me too, I mean, I, you know, it just gets referenced of what the head coach says, and I think it definitely has happened this season where they kind of get frustrated. And, you know, the Hawks free throw rate is one of those things that people are talking about a lot. And it's way down last year. They were in the top three in the league and now they're in, you know below average. And Trey was one of the poster boys for the free throw, uh, for the free throw stuff along with James Harden. Every, every story you saw, and maybe even, maybe even wrote one. I, I don't remember um, about the, about the, about the rule changes. It was a lot of Harden and it was a lot of Trey young talking about. And that's not the reason why the free throw rate's down, but his free throw rate is down. And so is the team. And, I wonder how much that is bothering them. I, I don't think it's like the reason that the offense has gotten away from them, but there have been moments where like the other night Bogdanovich didn't get a call and like very openly was arguing with a, with an official like right before his man scored like for a layup. And it was like one of those things that just sticks out to people. Um, so there's some merit to it, but I think it's more like just one of the things and probably a pretty small one. Uh, but they are, they're definitely not thrilled with the officiating so far. Yeah. Um, and I mean, like, there was the, the same thing with Harden and his free throw rate being down at a career low early in, earlier in the season, and he's gotten back to getting to the line a little bit more in more recent games. One thing, I, I didn't write anything about it when it was happening, but one thing that I thought was really funny that I remember at the time was that they made the video of all the different kinds of things that are not going to be called fouls anymore. And, I mean, they had to do it on purpose, that they didn't include anything from Harden or Trey. They because like it was very <laughs> clearly the rules were designed to stop them from doing the things that they were doing. Well, you know this like, like the, the first story about it. I remember this vividly. Woj was breaking the first story about it, and the two players you referenced in the first tweet about it were Harden and Trey. And it's like that wasn't an accident. Like I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm very sure that was discussed. <laughs> and that, but the league video about it, none of the videos. Yep. For the, like, was was any of Harden or Trey? I was like, come on, guys. Throw us a bone here and give us like Trey flailing backwards into somebody, Harden ripping his arms through. Like, <laughs> I mean, I I get it, man. Like, listen, Trey, it, he should be a poster boy. That he's really good at drawing fouls. He always has been dating back. That's, to the, that's a skill. Like, it is. people would get so mad about it, and I'd be like, all right, Hard- somebody else do it. I, I think like, Harden. I think Harden is a little bit more of a uh, performer with the uh, foul drawing. Like, he he became pretty ridiculous at sometimes. But listen, they were taking advantage of the rules. That's what happens. But, I mean, Trey's free throw rate is down, no question. But for me, 
it's not his free throw rate that I'm worried about. It's everybody else. Like, Trey's the only guy on the Hawks roster taking more than 2.8 free throws per game right now. And, like, that's just not good, man. They have guys who can get there, but not consistently. There's not a run. It goes back to the rim pressure thing we talked about earlier. They don't have a lot of rim pressure in general. And you're going to get less calls, particularly in this environment. If you're not getting to the rim, you're not going to get bailed out on those three-point shooting fouls the way that you might have before. And that's, that, that goes beyond Trey. That's everybody. So um, I'm a little worried. Not that it's going to be bottom 10 like it is right now. But to go from a top three free throw late last year of like 23% or so to 16% now, that's a few points per game that you can't afford to lose. Yeah. Um, so we've got about 15, 20 minutes left here or so. So I want to get to this before I forget about it. I, I want to talk about both Hunter and Reddish, both from the standpoint of obviously there's with all of the, the salaries on the team, there's a lot of like, oh, well, they're only going to be able to pay one of those guys. And I'm curious what your read on that is, both from a, like, do you think that they'll only be able to pay one of them? And, like, if they can only pay one of them, which would you do? And then from, like, a development standpoint where because Trey does so much offensively, they've sort of gone into very sort of narrow roles as offensive players and sort of constricted, like, maybe they could be more if they had the opportunity to have the ball in their hands more often, but they've basically become catch and shoot or catch and drive guys that aren't asked to do much else. Like I remember Hunter in college, like obviously wasn't a guy that had the ball in his hands a ton, but he had like an interesting sort of bully style post-up game that they just don't really use. And Reddish obviously was a guy who coming into college was considered like a potential guy. You could like build an offense around. And obviously that was very much not what he was at Duke. And I think that for me, he's much more interesting as a defensive prospect than as an offensive prospect. Uh, you know, and I think we've sort of seen that, like he came out shooting like absolutely on fire to start this season, but he's shooting, you know, like 20% from three over the last eight or nine games or so, or whatever it is, um, sort of fizzled out from that hot start. But what have you thought of like the paths of their development and the issue of maybe only being able to pay one or having to choose between them? Yeah, I mean, the, the low-hanging fruit is the, you know, the contract stuff is so interesting because, as you well know, like, owners just say that they're going to pay guys until they have to pay them. Uh, <laughs> uh, like, most owners are like, yeah, we can keep all these guys, and then realistic behind, behind the scenes. I, the one thing that I've said about this is, like, listen, they, they will probably have to pay the luxury tax in the near future, and I actually believe that they probably will be willing to go into the tax. Now, when I say into the tax, I do not mean way into the tax. I think right now... What they showed in committing to Herder last last offseason with an extension and Capella for an extension and Collins for all the money he got and still having bogey and all that is that they're willing to spend some money on this team. What I don't think is going to happen is that they're going to be like running Brooklyn Nets payroll where and that's that's kind of where you have to get to if you're going to pay everybody. And I mean everybody. So I don't know if it's going to be a trade. I don't know if it's going to be letting a guy go. Um, but the one thing I've been confident about the entire time is they're not going to have everyone that they've drafted and developed on a second contract making eight figures each. <laughs> like someone's yeah, not, I someone's not going to be there. possible unless you're going to pay like, you know, a hundred million dollars additional in tax, which they're not going to do. They're just for, not, I mean, and not just for one year, but like multiple years. And then you get into the repeater issues and like, look, owners should just do it. Like the goal is to sure. win. If you don't have enough money to pay, the tax and to pay the repeater tax, sell the team to someone who does. <laughs> you but and I agree on that. They're also just not 
going to do it. Like, well, yeah, that's we, that's the thing. Like uh, people get, I, I, I've heard from people about like why I care about this, and it's like, look, I want to be very clear. I don't, I don't care about Tony Wrestler's pockets. Uh, I think you should spend all the money in the world to make this team the best that it could possibly be. But when I know, I know, not just guessing, I know they're not going to go 50, 50 million in the tax. That becomes a construct. Like this season in particular, um, you know, I talked about sour cap a lot, and, like, and I was like, look. One thing I'm confident in is that this year, they're not going to go on the tax this year. And people are like, why? And it's like, because they're not going to. Uh, like, they know they have they to later on. They don't want the repeater clock. Right, like, it's, exactly. It's the thing that everybody is looking out for. That's what teams just do. And, uh, and, they, and by the way, they haven't gone in. So anyway, I mean, that's, that's, that's the, the broad strokes about what's happening with the money side. Um, in terms of the prospect development side, you know, they definitely have prioritized Hunter over Reddish. Um, rightfully so. I think he's a better prospect. They obviously traded a bunch to get him. Um, last year, early in the season, he had this great like 15, 20-game stretch where he's looking like he was going to be a breakout guy, then he got hurt. Um, they, they, they have definitely kept him. Um, he's been off limits in trade talks, that kind of stuff. Like Honestly, if you were just to look at only the trade market in terms of like what's been discussed, you could have argued that he was their number two guy behind Trey uh, in the last year. Like Collins was more available in trade than Hunter. Um so that tells you what they think about him. Um, Reddish has been like very much available in trade for like probably a year plus now. Um, that's been reported. It's been talked about. It got really a lot of heat around the draft. They didn't trade him. So they're, they're definitely asking a lot for him. But I think he's available. And I think he, if I had to choose one guy to not be here long term, in terms of likelihood, I think it's probably Cam. Just because of all the rumors around him. And, you know, you mentioned his defense. I've always been high, high on his defense. I like his defense a lot. It's worth pointing out he has never been even an average offensive player at any no. point for the last three seasons. He basically um, was in game seven or game six or game seven. Well, and that's the thing. <laughs> last year, and then the first three games of this season, and that's like it. He has these shooting, and the thing is, and I, and I get it. Like if you just if you see him on the right night and the shots are going in, and he's the six eight guy who can play defense and. He, he looks really smooth. The jumpers, actually, to his credit, the mechanics on his jump shot look a lot better now than they used to. Um, but if you see him on the right night, he has 25 points, and it's like, this guy's a star. But if you watch him night in, night out, as, as I do, like he's not a good offensive player right now. He doesn't pass well. Uh, he turns the ball over a lot. He's not a good ball handler. Um, his shot selection is bad. All these things. So it doesn't always have to be that way. But right now, today, the Hawks have one player other than Trey Young in the rotation with more than a 19% usage rate. Guess who it is? I'm going to say it's Cam Reddish because that's who we're talking about. It is Cam Reddish at 24% usage, Jared. Yeah, I mean, it, some of that is like he comes off the bench and the other guys who... Yes, would but he should, he's, he's also rate. willing to shoot. Let's just say. Yeah, oh, he's yeah, willing. that dude will put up some drops. Um, so, I, don't, I mean, all told, like, I, I do agree with you with what you were talking about earlier with like how they've been groomed. In particular, you know, you're playing with Trey. You're not going to have the same opportunities. I think they both, um, not just Reddish. I think Hunter's also had some shot selection issues this year. Mm-hmm. I think off the knee stuff, maybe he's not quite aggressive. Maybe he's not quite trusting the knee just yet to be like all the way to the rim, using that physicality because that was one of his best offensive traits coming out of college. Like you said, was he can play some bully ball. He's really strong and physical as a wing. Um, he's a pretty good shooter too. They're both shooting well from the perimeter. It's just that they're taking some shots that you wouldn't want them to take. So, uh, you know, unless something's drastically changed, they definitely are prioritizing Hunter over Reddish. Um, Hunter's the better player right now. But, uh, yeah, it's been a weird start for both of them. And, honestly, if you're looking for guys beyond Capella and maybe, like, Gallo who have kind of struggled so far, I would point to both of them 
as uh, guys who have kind of held the Hawks back so far. Yeah, and look, I, I think it makes sense to prioritize Hunter too, not just because he's like a better player, but also because when you look at what they need from that spot on the wing, they need defense. And it's easier to find like guys who can defend small wings like Reddish can than guys who can defend big wings like Hunter can. Like he just has more there. I think they're the same height or maybe even Reddish might be an inch taller, but Hunter is just much more thickly and strongly built. Where... Reddish, Reddish is more of a playmaker too. Like I think, and I've been guilty of this too. I've pointed it out a lot. Like Reddish is good as a good defensive prospect, but he is definitely more of an off ball, like passing lanes guy, like think Robert Covington style. Then, yeah. then he is an on-ball guy. On-ball, he's not anything. He's not terrible or anything, but he's definitely more of a Covington-type defender. Where, yeah, there's a lot of value in that help side stuff and the and the habit creation, but he's not this like take away a guy and you know be this you know on-ball. Whereas Hunter is much better on the ball. Isn't the same kind of playmaker as Reddish, to be fair. But I I agree with you. I think the the profile of what Hunter is, I like better. On that end. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you. And then just uh, before we uh, get going. Um, so two things. The Illuminati says a consolidation trade feels like an inevitability. Here it is. I think I would agree with that. <laughs> like that's something that people have been talking about for a while now. Like it's them and the Grizzlies. Everybody's like, when are they going to make the consolidation trade? And then Baller Science says, you know, the Warriors ownership will pay the luxury tax for four years. And this year they're a repeater tax. It's a win at all cost mentality. And like, yeah, if the Hawks go to five uh, finals in a row and win three of them, I think they'll be willing to pay the repeater tax. Well, uh, and like, like we said, it's not like we're arguing against them doing it. I, I, I would love them to pay the luxury tax. I would love for that to happen. I just, I don't think this group is going to do that. And I could be wrong, but also the market, like honestly, we'll give the market credit. The Hawks, fa- Hawks fans have come out. Um, the place was rocking last year, but you know, you know, the reputation that Atlanta's had for the Hawks support or lack thereof. Um, I think it's always been a good NBA town and less of a Hawks town. And I, I do think that Trey, that Trey, um, has changed some of that, and this team changed some of that last year. They actually um, have a growing fan base, but they're not selling out on Tuesday nights. They're not going to be the Warriors, and you're going to you're going to be sold out on a Tuesday against against OKC. They're not going to do that. It's going to draw. It was when drawing better, but it's not a situation where you can just like it's not MSG to go uh, up up where you are, Jerry, where they're going to they're going to sell the place out on Tuesday. They're just not going to. Yeah, do I mean, look, they were selling out the Garden on Tuesdays in March against like you know, the, the terrible Timberwolves in 2006, like, <laughs> you know, like, and maybe, and maybe the Hawks will get there. I'm not saying they can't get there, but right now we just haven't seen them draw like that. And that, you know, that's, that's one small thing, but it does matter when you're talking about going and paying a hundred dollars, a hundred million dollar tax bill. It just, it does. Yeah. And look, I, I think that as the schedule softens up a little bit for them, they'll get back on track a little bit. And like, not being four and eight solves a lot of both perceived problems and real problems. Like, you know, like if they're, they better, they're better than yeah. Orlando and Oklahoma city and, and like, instead of, you know, Utah and Phoenix, they're going to look a little bit better, you know, I, I would agree. <laughs> uh, so I, I don't think we talk uh, for a team that's based so much around one guy. We didn't talk uh, about him specifically, Trey young, as much as we probably should have. Like you mentioned, he's not necessarily been their quote-unquote best player so far this year. I became like sort of not necessarily a full 100% Trey convert last year because he still pisses me off sometimes, but (laughs) mostly because I had such high expectations for him on every trip down the court because the combination of the different types of shots he can create, 
for himself and for his teammates is so ludicrous that when he comes down the court and pulls up behind a screen with a hand in his face with 18 seconds left on the shot clock, I just like want to shake him and be like, you can do better than this. We know you can do better than this. So what, what, what have you seen from him this year? What's, what's the good and the bad, I guess, of Trey so far this season? Yeah, it's very hipster of us to not talk about Trey until right now, but uh, uh, he's good. Uh, obviously, that's that's why, kind of why I, I don't talk about him as much as I probably should. Is that he's just he's really good. I think he uh, this year it's been kind of more of the same. Like he's taking probably a few more mid rangers than I would like, and not as many threes as I would like. But aside from that, like he's one of the best passers in the league. He makes a highlight pass every night. Um, I've talked about this forever, but his his passing remains underrated because of the talk always about his foul drawing and his, th- his long threes. But his passing is, uh, you can't be much of a better passer than he is at his size. Like that's the only limitation that he has is 86-1, but he can make every pass. He's just ridiculous. Like he's kind of a, uh, you know, a lead cylinder where I can use on his passing. And then the shot creation is what it is. Like he's, I'm kind of with you. I was not the biggest Trey advocate in terms of like, you know, I thought he got a lot, a lot, a lot too much hate early in his career. Um, and, but I wouldn't call myself like the biggest fan of his, like of this like archetype of player. I'm not, he's, he's not my favorite archetype, but he's proven, man. He's a superstar. Uh, you know, what else can you say about him? He's managed to be efficient as well. And the biggest thing we talked about to bring things full circle is that basically whenever he's on the court for the last two and a half seasons, they've been good on offense and that's because of him. Yeah. I mean, look, when, like I said, when you have the skill set that he has, that's a guy that can pretty much guarantee you an above average offense or better. And like, I think for him, the goal should definitely be better than above average. Like it should be between top five and top 10 pretty much every year. And I think that we've seen for, like you said, a long stretch now that he is capable of anchoring that on an every night basis. And that should be like, they should build their team with that in mind. And I think they, they have made an effort to do that in terms of like stocking up on a whole bunch of wings and different size defenders. And like, I, I think the backup point guard is still an issue, but you know what? Backup point guard has been an issue for the warriors for forever too. Yep. You know, like <laughs> when you have a guy that's such a crazy offensive force like that, you can't have a backup point guard who does the same thing. If there was a guy capable of doing the same thing, he wouldn't be a backup point guard. Like he'd be, a star somewhere else. So it's like, it's, it's really difficult to find a backup to that guy, you know, like, I I, I don't know what more there is to say really about that specific issue. Like it is an issue, but it's also way more difficult to solve than I think it seems on the surface. Yeah. And you know, we talked about it, but you either have to run a different system when he's off the court, or you have to find somebody that can run the system that he is running. And that's really hard. And I think the Hawks are like hoping that a couple years from now that Sharif Cooper can do it. Um, but he's, he's on a two way contract for a reason. Like he's the kind of guy that like maybe could run that offense and be, this, be that center centerpiece. He's not, he's not gonna be Trey young, but they don't have, it's hard to replicate what he can do. And, uh, they're, they're definitely building around him. I mean, from the very beginning, they've been open about the fact that they're going to build around him, and they have, and that's why they emphasized those big wings with Hunter and Reddish, um, defense with Capella, all that stuff. And, uh, you know, it's it's worked to, uh, obviously, some degree at this point, and uh, certainly he has not been the problem in the 4-8 start, I would say. You know, Trey could be better than he's been so far. He's not been, like, his A+, but he's been a solid, like, B and for him, his B is very, very good. And, uh, you know, they, they can and will win with him playing the way that he's played so far. It's not been him. 
Yeah, I would agree with you. And you know what he is like a hundred percent an A plus at all the time is being extremely hateable by opposing <laughs> fan bases. Well, you're a Knicks fan, so yeah. Uh, I mean, look, everybody here. Like, I haven't seen my friends hate a player as much as they hate Trey in <laughs> such a long time, and that's obviously a testament. I think he loves it too. By the the way. terror. Oh, he absolutely loves it. That's the best part. Like, that's what makes him so good at it. Like. Obviously, the the fact that my friends haven't hated a guy like this in a while is testament to how terrible the Knicks have been. But also, like the type of hatred that he inspires amongst my friends is something that's only been reserved for like Reggie Miller and Paul Pierce in our lifetimes. So I think that uh, you know, obviously, it would take them both staying good for a, a while longer than they have been, which is like one year for both of them. <laughs> Um, but if, if you can get anything like that level of hatred going on for the next five, 10 years or so, I think that would be pretty cool. Yeah. Rivalries are fun. I, I'm in for rivalries and, uh, all the videos of, of Knicks fans and, uh, Trey, Trey loves it, man. Like I, if there's one thing that he can do, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's own being that kind of heel figure. I think he's, uh, already leaning into it. And, uh, as young as he is, that's going to be uh, fun if he keeps doing it. Yeah, I mean, the only thing he has to do other than that is just shave his head, admit that the hair yeah, come is... On, uh, come on home, Trey. Come on home. Yeah, yeah. I mean... I'm with you. I, I've been, uh, <laughs> I mean, if look, if, if I hadn't gotten LeBron to shave his head, or Evan Fournier to shave his head, or Co- Cody Zeller to shave his head, after all these years that I've been talking about them, I don't think it's going to work with Trey either. But uh, eventually <laughs> that's going to have to happen, my friend. Um, Brad, thanks so much for doing this, man. I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you talking Hawks. Um, you can find Brad at the Locked On Hawks podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. And then uh, what, what's your Twitter? It's B. It's at, at BT Roland. BT and then my last name of Roland. And uh, I write at Diamond Up Rocks, primarily on the NBA side. I retired from Hawks blogging uh, this summer, but I'm still doing the podcast. So I guess I'm still kind of in that world. But uh, yeah, Dime and, uh, and at, BT, at BT Roland on Twitter. All right. Thanks, man. Uh, back next week, Tuesday and Thursday five to six again guests uh to be announced at the moment hopefully gonna have a couple good ones for you uh thanks for listening brad have a good one man thanks sir have a good night